episode 378, the status of telehealth reimbursement and other telehealth policy updates. Today, I speak with Josh LaRosa. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Okay, so telehealth for Medicare patients. Currently, there's payment parity, meaning a clinician gets paid the same amount for a Medicare patient visit, regardless of whether that patient comes in the office or has a telehealth encounter. Right? Or did that end already? And if it didn't end, how much longer will payment parity continue? Also, is it the same for commercial and Medicaid patients? Congress makes rules for Medicare patients, but is it Congress that makes the rules for commercial and or Medicaid telehealth reimbursement rates? Or or how do those reimbursement decisions get made? What about the doing telehealth across state lines thing? The idea that if I'm a doc in New York, I can take a telehealth appointment with a patient in Arizona, even though I am technically not licensed in Arizona. And who's in charge of that? Yeah, I went into today's conversation with Josh LaRosa, VP at Wynn Health Group, with a lot of questions. As you may suspect, today's program A is about telehealth, but just to level set on what we're not talking about, this interview does not dissect the should we use the telehealth or should we not question. And it does not get into best practices or equity concerns. For that info, listen to the show with Christian Millister or Liliana Petrova or Ali Yukar or Dr. Ian Tong. Links in the show notes. Also, we are not talking about the politics per se of who's for telehealth and who's against it. We also aren't drilling too far into the telehealth fraud cases that are coming to light right now. But of course, we cannot resist talking about them a little bit. So let me tell you what Josh LaRosa and I are, in fact, talking about today. We're specifically discussing the near-term future of CMS reimbursement for telehealth and the allowed so-called flexibilities for telehealth. We talk about a few of the whys behind why are policymakers doing some of the stuff that they are doing. And then we chat about the when, how long some of the new flexibilities and reimbursements that were permitted originally during the pandemic will continue. We touch on the cerebral incident, I guess maybe you'd call it, and the potential DEA or legislative actions that may result from that as well. An interesting point that we dig into for a couple of minutes is this one. Do not forget that the whole telehealth reimbursement debate, do I want to call it? Should we cover it or should we not cover it? And for how much? This whole debate is part of a bigger debate, a much bigger debate, actually. The fee-for-service versus the not-fee-for-service debate. That's the larger context of all of this, and I think it's often overlooked. I mean, nobody anywhere is limiting how often a practice who wants to use telehealth as part of some kind of risk-based or capitated thing can use telehealth. Why? Because in a capitated or bundle arrangement, from a Medicare trust fund perspective at least, telehealth visits are not equivalent to additional spend or additional volume. In a non-FFS environment, there's little chance of fraud also, really. Also, patient safety, arguably, probably, becomes much more of a practice concern. It gets a lot less rewarding to do unsafe things over telehealth when you don't get automatically paid to do them. And also paid to fix the problems that resulted from the unsafe things, which is the perverse beauty of FFS that we're all so familiar with. Acronym alert, PHE, stands for Public Health Emergency. 
A public health emergency is the thing the government declares, for example, during a pandemic. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Josh LaRosa, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Hey, Stacey. Great to be here. Thanks so much. Today, we're talking about telehealth and telehealth policy. What would you say the overarching story with telehealth policy is at this moment in time? If you look at how things were before the pandemic, telehealth was a modality of care that existed, though it was only permitted, at least in in Medicare, under very specific circumstances. This was informed in large part by just a lot of skepticism and concern that broad access to telehealth would lead to all sorts of bumps in utilization and overspending and fraud and all of these issues that we can get more into later. But there had been concerns about unfettered access to telehealth, if you will, in Medicare. And as a result, access had been very limited up until the pandemic. Now, as I'm sure folks remember, when the COVID-19 pandemic hit, especially in the early months of that, when there were the major shutdowns, HHS swiftly enacted several different flexibilities that were permitted by Congress under public health emergency waiver flexibilities. And that's just a lot of policy jargon, basically just to say that in this emergency situation, the federal government was able to broadly expand access to telehealth for Medicare beneficiaries. Kind of recapping, we had a situation pre-pandemic where everybody was worried that if they unleashed the beast that is telehealth, that suddenly Medicare patients everywhere would be utilizing telehealth. And if Medicare was paying for said telehealth, that just spend would go through the roof. Fraudsters everywhere would start to lean in and regard that the payment as a potential opportunity, right? So Medicare was leery about paying for any telehealth services. Pandemic hits. Wow, now we need telehealth. So HHS comes back and enacts, as you said, some flexibilities. Did I get that right? Yep, that's exactly right. All right. So let's talk about these flexibilities. What what kinds of flexibilities are we talking about that HHS allowed? There's basically five major categories of flexibility. So the first one and arguably the biggest and most impactful one was relaxing the, quote, statutory geographic and originating site restrictions. That's just a technical phrase that basically says prior to the pandemic, there were these restrictions that only allowed Medicare beneficiaries to access telehealth services if they were in basically a rural region and whether they were accessing telehealth services in a specifically enumerated site of care. The most important thing to note here is that this list expressly excluded the beneficiary's home as an originating site. And so moving into the COVID-19 situation, what the federal government did was relax that restriction such that beneficiaries could now access telehealth services wherever they were located in the country, whether it's rural or urban regions, and regardless of where they were receiving care from a site of care perspective, which means that they could now access services from their home. Pre-pandemic, they had to actually drive somewhere in order to get telehealth. Post-pandemic, they're like, you know what? If you're at home, it's fine. Exactly. Yes. So that's the biggest flexibility. There are a few others. So, for example, expanding the list of services authorized under the Medicare telehealth list. There were also a range of new providers added to the list of those who could furnish telehealth services. Another big thing was, again, before the pandemic, CMS didn't consider audio-only services as under the definition of telehealth, and this is actually per statute. So 
the way telehealth is defined in law is that it must be an audiovisual two-way synchronous exchange in order to qualify as telehealth. But in the pandemic situation, folks needed to be able to see their providers. And that could mean even through just a telephone call. And the last major change is that during the pandemic, the federal government has moved to pay for telehealth services at parity with, or in other words, equal to the amount that the federal government reimburses for in-person care. Um, and again, that's called payment parity. The federal government has in increased reimbursement rates to telehealth services to match those for in-person care. Okay, so we've got number one, relaxing the site of care restrictions, which I think also included, and correct me if I'm wrong, the idea that a provider, as long as they were licensed somewhere, could provide the care. So I could be in like, you know, New York and I could provide care to somebody in Kentucky. I didn't have to necessarily be licensed in the state of Kentucky. Is that correct? I think so. The whole licensure, like cross-state licensure issue is kind of complicated and that tends to be more of a state level issue, but states did enact a bunch of different flexibilities that allowed cross-state delivery of telehealth services despite not being licensed in a particular state or not. That's not part of what CMS is doing. It's a state-by-state -state call. I believe that's, that's correct, yes. Okay, so going through our five things, we've got relaxing the site of care restrictions. In other words, patients can get telehealth at home. We added several new services that could be considered qualified to receive payment. We added some new providers, you know, nurses, etc who maybe could provide these services. They could be audio only, this telehealth. And then also it is paid at parity. So it doesn't matter if a patient shows up at the office or the physician talks to them at home, they get the same FFS payment. Yes, that's exactly correct. Excellent. Okay, so what's the state of these flexibilities right now? I mean, the pandemic, I, I hesitate to even say where we are in the pandemic. That feels pretty fraught, but it is summer 2022. Are these flexibilities still in force? Yeah, it's a great and complex question. So yes, it is summer of 2022. We're still under a public health emergency declaration. And that's that declaration is what all of these flexibilities are ultimately tied to. So under normal circumstances, if a flexibility is enacted under a PHE declaration, once that PHE declaration expires, all of those flexibilities would go away. Unless, of course, Congress acts in such a way that extends these flexibilities. And for the last two years, Congress has really been thinking very hard on how and whether it wants to extend these flexibilities, to what extent, you know, how can they actually do this in a data-driven way, things along those lines. And what we've seen is a lot of signaling from Congress that they intend to do this. So there is general optimism among the relevant stakeholders that these flexibilities will continue beyond the pandemic whenever that PHE declaration does end. PHE obviously stands for public health emergency. We are still, according to Congress, and this continues to be a public health emergency. And as long as that declaration remains, then these five flexibilities that we just talked about will continue. Yes, that's true. What Congress has done fortunately has thought ahead a little bit and said, okay, well, we understand that this PHE declaration, this public health emergency declaration is going to end in the near-ish term. We don't know exactly when that's going to be, but it's going to happen. So let's set ourselves up so that way we have more time to think about how to extend these flexibilities more permanently without having to kind of decide that immediately when the PHE ends. So earlier this year in the most recent spending package, Congress said for most of those flexibilities I just named, 
these will be extended for an additional 151 days once the public health emergency declaration ends. And at that point, it's presumed that Congress will then be able to figure out a more permanent fix for what it wants to do with Medicare telehealth access. Okay, so public health emergency, someone declares we're done, it's over, and then the clock starts ticking. Congress has 151 days to get the plan together. Exactly. So why is this such a big decision? You know, like everybody's used to telehealth, Medicare patients like it. I mean, we kind of have stabilized on the number of what percentage of visits or the number of visits every month that are telehealth. Why doesn't the government just say, all right, well, that was a good experiment. Let's 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 continue. Yeah, that really gets to the crux of of the debate here. A few reasons why this is the case. The first is there's a whole lot of historic concern. I mentioned this earlier, but this concern really still persists. And that's with the risk of fraud, waste and abuse that comes through greater access to telehealth. This just means that folks are worried that if providers are basically able to bill for telehealth to the extent that they want to without really any guardrails or restrictions that these fraudsters are going to come in and start coming up with schemes to game the system and collect reimbursement for telehealth services that aren't provided appropriately or are part of some other, you know, greater fraudulent scheme, so to speak. That's an issue that really remains today. In fact, I believe it was OIG just released a special alert to medical professionals back in July that started to characterize some of the fraudulent schemes that we're seeing from telehealth companies and are warning folks against some of those activities in an effort to reduce the rate at which we're seeing fraud, waste, and abuse. Ripped from the headlines just the other day, saw, here's the headline, feds charged 36 in alleged healthcare fraud schemes having to do with telehealth totaling 1.2 billion. (laughs) So (laughs) these are not like mom and pop fraud schemes. Exactly, yeah, these are sophisticated folks working here. And so there is definitely recognition among people who are much smarter than me thinking about this, of course, and Those, for example, in the Medicare Payment Access Commission or MedPAC are kind of trying to toe this line because they see that access to telehealth is so beneficial and helpful for beneficiaries, but also are trying to be good stewards of Medicare's budget, essentially. They've recommended some ways for HHS and the OIG to implement certain guardrails to prevent higher rates of fraud, waste, and abuse, and that could be helpful and some something that is included in legislation moving forward on telehealth as a way to mitigate the risk of fraud, waste, and abuse. It's something that I think experts are trying to figure out how exactly to do before just opening up access, broadly speaking. And are there patient safety concerns? Yes. And CMS has spoken quite a bit about this as well. With telehealth, you're receiving care from a provider through an audiovisual platform. Sometimes it's through just the phone. And for a lot of services, this is actually very seamless. Behavioral health is sort of the archetypal version of a healthcare service that's almost like tailor-made for telehealth, if you will. But for certain services, you might really actually need to be in the room with the patient. The doctor might need to be able to touch them or interact with them or look at something more closely. So there are some debates on which clinical conditions and which services are actually appropriate within a telehealth context. For certain services, 
CMS is more sure of those being appropriately delivered under telehealth, but for others, the jury is still out and they're hoping to have some additional time in order to figure out what services are actually appropriately delivered via telehealth and which are not. Yeah, so I think we've got like raw fraud, just like people who are actively trying to defraud the government is one concern. Another one is patient safety, you know, just Mm -hmm. somebody doing something over telehealth that maybe is question mark, it's going to work, or maybe there's a safety concern. And then I think probably the last category, which you sort of alluded to earlier, is just waste. You know, like there's always somebody doing a study for how many patients who have a telehealth visit wind up seeking in-person care anyway. Right. So it's almost like you just added another costly step. Exactly. Yeah. So overspending has been a longstanding concern among those who have been more conservative with respect to telehealth expansion. You laid it out really well. While the, the beneficiary has benefited by having a more convenient entry into this care path, they've now doubled the amount of services that they are going to need as a result of this because for every telehealth visit, some are concerned that there's going to be that in-person visit. And so that would really hike up Medicare spending. There's actually been some recent debate around this. The CBO or the Congressional Budget Office took those 151-day extension for these telehealth flexibilities and calculated that this would obviously come at some cost. And folks have extrapolated that if these flexibilities were allowed permanently, then after 10 years, Medicare spending would increase by $25 billion. So that seems to be something to to really grapple with, especially as we're worrying about like insolvency of the Medicare trust fund and the deficit and, inf- and inflation and all of these things. However, there's other analysis, for example, from Michigan's Institute for Healthcare Policy. They found that Medicare telehealth utilization remained steady in 2021, and essentially that telehealth was used very commonly as a substitute rather than in addition to in-person care in 2021 based on an extensive analysis of Medicare claims. So there's definitely not definitive consensus on what the effects would be. And a lot of this is driven by the different assumptions that are baked into those models. But the jury's still out either way. It's, I think, a matter of having more time to be able to study the effects of expanded telehealth flexibilities. And that's essentially, I think, where we're going to land is having some temporary extensions before we do anything more permanent. There's still debate relative to whether telehealth will save an in-person visit or whether it is additional visits that the government then winds up paying for. And the CBO has estimated that this will come into the tune of $25 billion, which, as you just mentioned, is, is certainly a number to be concerned about. There is one underlying assumption in everything that we're just talking about here, though, because everything that we're talking about here presumes a fee-for-service environment, right? Like if the patient is part of a value-based care or a capitated environment, then, you know, if there's an additional visit, fantastic. The patient now has improved access and it, it doesn't immediately lead to a cost increase. In fact, maybe there's shared savings. How does value-based care fit into this? equation or do you want to comment on the FFS angle? Yeah, you're spot on, Stacey. And and a lot of folks have been really ramping up their dialogue on this exact point. But just to reiterate what you said, under a fee-for-service payment model, there is just an overall bias towards utilization and spending. And so if you add another tool or modality to a provider's toolkit, there is just going to be more of a risk for overspending. And it's nothing inherent necessarily with telehealth, but it's more just a problem of the underlying payment model itself. You pay for volume, you get volume. 
Exactly. And so what a lot of folks are saying is, okay, well, all of these problems that we're wrestling with right now are hopefully very temporary problems because as the federal government shifts more and more to a value-based payment system for at least Medicare, telehealth will not be as much of a risk factor for overspending and utilization because it becomes, as I said, a tool in a provider's toolbox or a health system's toolbox or what have you to manage the care for their panel of beneficiaries. And it doesn't actually become a new fee for them. It becomes something that they just can do under a capitated payment arrangement or a global budget. And so the the overutilization risk goes away because the payment incentives have just changed fundamentally. And actually, a little bit of that has already been pre-imaged in the difference between fee-for-service Medicare and how that's incorporated telehealth versus Medicare Advantage. So Medicare Advantage has far fewer restrictions relative to telehealth than Medicare fee-for-service does. And that was even the case prior to the pandemic. But as we know, with Medicare Advantage, underlying that is this capitated payment arrangement from CMS to the MA plans. And so there is less concern about how telehealth will impact spending for these MA plans because they're already accounting for that when they set their budgets and contract with their network. The theory is once we get to a more expansive value-based care arrangement across Medicare, these concerns will go away. I think you had said this in the past, but while this on the surface is a telehealth conversation, it's actually a risk-based care, value-based care conversation because we wouldn't even be having this conversation about telehealth if everybody was capitated or everybody was in some value-based care arrangement. Providers could do whatever they wanted. Exactly, yeah. The new CMS fee schedule, which is a buzz right now, does that fit into this at all? It does, it does, yeah. CMS proposed its new physician fee schedule for 2023. And that's definitely gotten a lot of buzz for various different reasons. There are some pretty impactful cuts to physician payments. But one of the, I think, helpful things here is that CMS is proposing um, a bunch of expansions to telehealth. And that would largely be in support of some of these like broader considerations that we've been talking about, especially with respect to trying to gain additional evidence and information on which services are more appropriately delivered via telehealth. CMS added several new services to the Medicare telehealth list on a provisional basis. And this basically means that Medicare has guaranteed it will cover reimbursement for these services through the end of next year or the end of 2023. These are a diverse range of services. So therapy services, audiology, psychophysiological therapy, ophthalmological services, developmental screening, health behavior intervention, a broad range of services. But what CMS is trying to do with this is expand the range of care so it can see how that affects outcomes and quality and safety and all of these things that folks are trying to get their hands around in terms of telehealth. And at the end of this provisional period or the end of 2023, CMS will then be able to determine whether to permanently continue coverage of these services moving forward. In a nutshell, CMS did in fact cut rates for non-inpatient services, but at the same time, they added things that could be covered, it sounds like. Yes, exactly. All right. As we were talking about earlier, there's more than one cook in the kitchen here. So we have the federal government that's doing stuff, but then we also have states doing things. How do states, besides site of care origination, how do they fit into this mix? 
States are also contemplating how to work telehealth more into their markets as well, especially since states made a lot of similar changes to Medicare, but on the state level for Medicaid and also for private plans over which states have legislative domain. So a number of, of states have actually made permanent changes to keep a lot of these flexibilities moving forward once you know the COVID-19 pandemic ends. So a lot of these issues are the same. For example, should states continue to require that audio-only telehealth services be covered? Should states continue to require that telehealth services are paid at parity with in-person services? Things like those issues are being contemplated at the state level in addition to being contemplated on the federal level. The difference is, as you're saying, with the multiple cooks analogy, there's several different cooks deciding which flexibilities they want to keep going forward. Not every state is doing this necessarily uniformly in the same way, but all states are asking more or less the same questions. It sounds like states have a slightly different jurisdiction. So while they can't make Medicare calls, they can certainly make Medicaid calls and they certainly can make requirements for commercial plans that are in their states. And they certainly can talk about states or the licensing entities right now. So they certainly can make licensing calls, right? So like, as you said, everybody's kind of got pieces to this puzzle that they're in charge of. They all sort of fit together and and overlap, but they're also different in certain ways. Yes, exactly. And what is a great example of maybe something that a state's doing? Yeah, so Arizona has really emerged as one of the leading examples of what states can do at the state level. Arizona passed this law last year at this point to move a number of these flexibilities forward. And among the changes, one of them includes establishing payment parity for many telehealth services, especially for telemental health treatments, which, as we mentioned, is very important, particularly in the telehealth conversation. And there is also, as you were discussing, provisions related to licensure and license portability in this bill as well. What this new law from Arizona does is it allows providers in good standing with their own state medical boards to treat Arizona residents as long as several other considerations are met. So that that handles that you can't cross state lines business, at least for Arizona. Arizonans can get help from anyone across the country as opposed to having, you know, if there's a therapist shortage in their local market, it's problematic. Exactly. And one other thing I wanted to mention was this is more recent than last year's change from Arizona, for example, but this entity called the Uniform Law Commission went through this very extensive consensus-based process, pulling in many different states and stakeholders to develop something called model legislation, which basically is sort of a, a starting template for a state to take to enact in their own state legislatures. And this model legislation would be to expand access to telehealth at the state level, primarily through a lot of that um, licensure portability issue that we were talking about just now. One of the things that the model legislation would do would establish a registration system for out-of-state practitioners to make it easier for those providers to provide care across state lines. While this model legislation doesn't actually affect any changes because it's just draft at this point, folks are kind of paying attention to this because, again, as I mentioned, it was very consensus-based. And so for states that haven't contemplated what to do about this licensure issue, folks are, one, speculating whether they'll sort of take this model legislation and run with that in their own state legislatures and create a more open environment for providers to deliver telehealth across state lines, which would be especially impactful, as you just mentioned, in the wake of just an overall provider shortage, especially with behavioral health care, but certainly across specialties. Well, we'll see who comes out in 
opposition to that. Most likely it's going to be, and it has been, health systems, but we shall see. Speaking of tele-mental health in particular, obviously we've got the cerebral case study. I'm not sure what you would call it going on right now where Cerebral is a telemental health. Is it a startup or just a company at this juncture? They provide telemental health. It's venture backed and they ran afoul in a number of different ways, but mainly because they were over prescribing controlled substances to patients with it didn't seem like there was very many controls. How does that impact anything that we may have discussed? Yeah, so this is almost like a, a separate conversation within the broader telehealth discussion. I think a lot of that is because of sort of where the jurisdiction lies at the federal level. So just to say, speak on that really quickly with a lot of what we've been talking about before, at least at the federal level, that was within the realm of HHS and CMS. With these telehealth-enabled prescribing of controlled substances, that's very much a drug enforcement agency area of jurisdiction or the DEA. To provide just some history there, at the onset of the pandemic, in order to allow patients to continue being able to be prescribed controlled substances for things like mental health conditions or just other conditions that require treatment by controlled substances, the DEA relaxed certain federal restrictions that previously prohibited providers from prescribing controlled substances via a telehealth visit if there hadn't been an in-person visit prior. But now during the pandemic, providers are able to just see a patient in a telehealth context, make an assessment, and then prescribe a controlled substance for their particular condition. And a lot of people find that to be extremely helpful, very convenient. As I was mentioning earlier with mental health especially, it's just very seamless for folks to receive care for their mental health services via telehealth. And so by also integrating the ability for providers to prescribe controlled substances to treat some of those conditions, it just really meshed well with this new kind of like telehealth-enabled care delivery model that we're seeing unfold before us during the pandemic. But then with Cerebral, they have kind of muddied the water a little bit and have thrown some questions into the mix with respect to to what extent should these flexibilities be maintained and should there be any guardrails against them? And what does it mean for a provider to be able to make an assessment and, a, and a, an appropriate diagnosis for a patient via telehealth? These questions are now being contemplated as part of what Congress, I think, is, is trying to do with telehealth, the American Tele Medicine Association, and I think 70 other stakeholders signed on to a letter earlier this year aimed at the DEA really urging them and Congress to kind of work out a solution to this to allow these flexibilities to remain in effect permanently. So there is real interest in doing this. And, and I mean, it is really important for folks to be able to access their medicine in the most convenient and appropriate way possible. But the emergence of some of that actors, I think, will put some pause on those who are contemplating whether to allow these flexibilities to stay in place permanently. And so we may see that kind of get woven into a more permanent telehealth package. It's probably a perfect example of someone violating the spirit of the intent, right? You know, like just pushing the envelope as far as it possibly would go in the interest of making as much money as possible, which unfortunately is something that we contend with all the time in the healthcare industry where it's profits before patients and then bad things happen. Exactly. Josh, so here we are in September 2022. Congress has just come back from recess. 
What's going on right now? What's in store? What's the next steps? Rising quickly to the top is a new piece of legislation that was just recently introduced by Representatives Liz Cheney and Debbie Dingell. As I had mentioned earlier, Congress reenacted this 151-day extension for several different telehealth flexibilities. What this bill would do would, rather than saying, let's extend these flexibilities for 151 days once the public health emergency declaration ends, this would take those flexibilities and say, let's just temporarily extend those for two years, so through the end of 2024, and give ourselves enough breathing room to collect the data, figure out what actually works for patients, figure out a way to prevent against fraud, waste, and abuse, and then come back by the end of 2024, having set themselves effectively a legislative deadline at that point to then go ahead and craft legislation that contemplates the future of telehealth in a more long-term fashion at that point. So the current plan is 151 days. Like that's what we've got going on exactly right now. But someone has proposed that we should extend that for two years. And we'll find out whether that happens or not by the end of 2022. Exactly. And the bill, I mean, almost like unheard of bipartisan support at this point. So it's expected to receive a similar amount of support in the Senate. So it's likely to be two years then. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing's guaranteed in Congress, but this is a pretty strong stamp of approval from the current Congress. Josh, the Wynn Health Group, where can people go for more information if they'd like to learn more about your work? Find us at our website, winhealth.com. We're also on Twitter and LinkedIn, and we'd be happy to take any questions from any listeners. And we're always looking to grow our partnerships across the healthcare system. Josh LaRosa, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thanks so much, Stacey. It was a pleasure as always. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.